This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So it, I heard that you recently had an interesting literary experience with time. I did, although, uh, I mean, I've had lots of interesting literary experiences with time, but in this case, I interviewed Jonathan Lethem in Lawrence, Kansas, which is about a 30 minute drive from Kansas City. We talked about his new book, Brooklyn Crime Novel, which is set in the same neighborhood as his novel, Fortress of Solitude, which came out 20 years ago in 2003. Well, I definitely know Fortress of Solitude. We've talked about that book on the show before, but we've never had Jonathan on the show before. Aren't those two books set kind of at the same time? Yeah, kind of. I mean, all right, so Fortress of Solitude is definitely like 70s Brooklyn, although it progresses into the future as the plot goes on, But which is where Jonathan Lethem grew up, and Brooklyn crime novel definitely has scenes set at that time, but it also like moves around in time. There are scenes in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s. In a way, the novel seems to be trying to compress time or look at Brooklyn at several simultaneous times, which is interesting to me because when I saw Jonathan in Lawrence, I had not seen him for 20 years. Oh, whoa, that's that's a huge gap. How? What was that like? It was really interesting because I had invited him to come to Kansas City to speak at Rockhurst University, where I was teaching at the time, for Fortress of Solitude. And he did this reading, which we'll talk about, you'll hear, in like the cafeteria <laughs> where there was like an ice machine making noise and all kinds of crazy stuff. But it was kind of beautiful because I it felt like it. there's no way that it had been 20 years between these conversations. And here we were talking about some of the same places and same scenes, but seen through a, a different lens. That's wild. Well, so I obviously missed that first conversation between you and Jonathan back in 2003, but I am looking forward to hearing this one because we are going to broadcast it as this episode. Jonathan Lethem is the New York Times bestselling author whose novels include Dissident Gardens, Chronic City, The Fortress of Solitude, and Motherless Brooklyn, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award, as well as the essay collection The Ecstasy of Influence, which was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. A recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, he has been published in The New Yorker, Harper's, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and The New York Times, among other publications. And as you mentioned, his new book is Brooklyn Crime Novel, which you are now going to listen to him discuss in an episode wit taped live in Lawrence, Kansas at the Cider Gallery with the help of the Raven Bookstore and the Lawrence Public Library. My name is Whitney Terrell. I'm a co-host of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. And I want to thank the Raven Bookstore and the Lawrence Public Library for and the 
Cider Gallery. Oh, yeah, is that the right name? Yes. Yeah. And the Cider Gallery for welcoming us here tonight. And I want to thank Jonathan for being here in Lawrence. And all of you. I'm going to add one more thank you to a special contingent, which is the Lethem family. That's right. Which showed up in force tonight. Let's have a, well, let's, I want to see their hands and a round of applause for their presence. It's fantastic. I had no idea you were going to be hosting a family reunion here. It's helpful with the uh, numbers, anyway. Um, I remember hosting you at Rockhurst University in Kansas City. Back in like 2003? Yeah, or four, it would have been one of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you were probably touring for Fortress of Solitude, I guess. I have a couple of weird memories about the reading. I don't know how much of you remember. Like, <laughs> I remember that it had to be transferred from the normal venue to like a cafeteria <laughs> and that there was an ice machine that made a lot of noise while you're, and I was very sweaty about the ice machine. I don't know if you've noticed that at all, but I was getting so upset about it during the We, we definitely didn't have the elegance of the cider No, gallery. it was not like yeah. the cider gallery, <laughs> not nearly as nice. Um, what else do you remember about that tour? I mean, because, you know, like, this book is, that you're, we're talking about tonight is going to be con is connected to that. Yeah, right. So that's, tw I mean, that's 20 years ago. Yeah. Fortress of Solitude was the f my first attack at this kind of, my legacy material of growing up in that part of Brooklyn in that time period and, and with all the uh, marvelous and, and also perplexing things that constituted the city at that time and my childhood. Yeah. And I, so, you know, it really does feel like there's a kind of rhyme to coming back into a conversation with you 20 years later because the two books are so strongly related, although in a, in a, they have a strange relation, I would also say. Because when I wrote Fortress, of course, I thought I'd exhausted the, the subject and it was a very complete, you know, not, I, you know, I wasn't trying to conclude the, the, anyone's thinking about Brooklyn because it can't be concluded. Right. It's, it's an overwhelming subject. But I was trying to fulfill my own terms, you know, say what I had to say about it. And for a long time, I thought that was... The la my last word. Right. Um, and then very slowly over the period of these 20 years, I, in some way, it overtook me that I was going to want to go at the same subject matter in some ways. When it, it sort when of it, overtook it, you, like when was that? Well, it, 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 it's great that you ask about what that tour was like because in a way, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but going around especially when I believe it was that we met in 2004 for the paperback tour, which was okay, really that's probably more like super it. extensive. I went yeah. to so many places. I also went to a lot of places I, uh, that were more unexpected. I drove myself around. I feel like Rockhurst University is unexpected. The country by car. And I, was, I, was, I, went to uh, I went to Tallahassee and, and um, Oxford, Mississippi and Tuscaloosa. And, One of the um, great bookstores in the world, however, yes, is in Oxford, Mississippi. Square books. Um, and as well as, you know, a lot of colleges. But one of the things that I've, I've felt at the time was that as Fortress of Solitude emanated out into the world and people had actually read it, because there's a difference. You know, this book is a week old. So I'm, we're talking to a room of people who might have read a couple of chapters already or, you know, you probably did your homework. And well, if they're it, doing the right thing, they're going to buy the book and it's not, it very soon. Uh, it's not a conversation with people who've already sat with it. Yeah. But by the time of the paperback tour of that book, which had been embraced in a way that was really gratifying for me, 
there was a lot of conversation with people who had a lot of feelings about it. Mm -hmm. And I have called it the Fortress Listening Tour because it was as much about <laughs> what people wanted to say to me as it was about anything well, I What kind of things did they want to say? Well, there were, first of all, there was the, the diaspora. There were New York City street kids right. okay. who, of my general you know, ilk who wanted to say whether they were in New York or or not, whether they'd run screaming and were located now in Tuscaloosa. Or I was buying Oxford. socks in Target today yeah. and saw a guy with a letterman's jacket that said Brooklyn 77 on the back. I don't know if he was from there at well, that time, but you know, of course, maybe Brooklyn, that's a brand now. There's a there's a lot of hype around Brooklyn, so you can't be certain that that okay. means more than that he thought it was a cool jacket, yeah. right? But um, whether it was people who knew New York City and wanted to start the conversation with like, you know, comparing which high school each of us went to. But also, and I think in some ways equally intense for me, were people from other milieus who felt that the book raised issues for them or spoke to them or told them something about, named something about their own experience that they wanted to, uh, to talk to me about. And this was true in a lot of places. It was well, that was true for me. Yeah. I mean, I had written a book called The Huntsman that came out in 2001 that was about black and white characters in Kansas City, right? And it's, it was a lot less controversial to do that then than it is now in, in an interesting way. Um, but I cared about writers because I had had a, 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 a great black professor at the University of Iowa, um, James Allen McPherson, who had given me a, he, if any white writer who worked under him, like, you have to be able to write about race if you're going to write about America. And so when I saw you doing that in that in, in Fortress of Solitude, that was important to me. And I felt like it was, oh, here's someone who's trying to do this same project that I've been told is important. And so for me, that was what was meaningful and interesting about the book. And, you know, one of the central projects of this book, Brooklyn Crime Novel, to me is like looking at the way different racial and ethnic groups interact in a space, Brooklyn, where the rules for how they should interact haven't been fully solidified yet, yeah. right? Is that part of what you're trying to do yeah, in this new book? Far, far from fully solidified. I, f I feel that you know one of the things that I have come to be be sure about was that in a way we were in a space of invention and negotiation, where ideas about the transformation of you know. Uh, race and urban life were were very you know a lot of people had a lot of big ideas and 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 the civil rights moment had just made a lot of people feel that they'd done something that was important but nobody understood where that put particularly a bunch of kids playing together on a city block it was not that you know Oh, there's some rules, but we, you know, if only you would hand them to us. You know, <laughs> right. It was. It has to go be out there and like invent the, the new reality. Yeah. We were, in a sense, almost tasked with reflecting something that seemed impossible to us, which was to like uh, occupy uh, a space that we'd been told was gonna be great, and it was fixed, and it, and that was crazily incomplete. That idea, and that experience made us all into kind of like uh, almost I you know I sometimes think we were like little political scientists and that doesn't mean we were articulate verbally or had a, a lexicon 
but we were in our, with our bodies in space, we were trying to understand and invent at the same time. And see if you can break rules. Like one of the very early scenes in the book, you know, you've got a group of white kids and this one black kid, it's C, right? Is that, is that C, C. who's running? Right, yeah. who's, who's, he's not named that yet. Going to play street hockey in this Italian neighborhood in Carroll Gardens. And they're stopped by the Italians, right, who live in that neighborhood and don't want to let them through. And they're particularly curious about C, though. They're like, what are you doing with these guys? You're, they're, they're very puzzled, like, why he's violating the rules, in essence, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was a very distinct, real feature of the territory that I experienced, that I, I came into consciousness inside, which is that the rules did exist in other places. And you only had to walk a certain number of blocks to be met with someone else's notion of how it was supposed to work. Oh, I see. So, and never more so than in Carroll Gardens, the okay. strong Italian enclave just across Court Street, where, you know, they were very eager to, to point out that you had gotten everything wrong and, and you were in, like, <laughs> way in violation. And also that you, your terms didn't make sense. You know, they, they were teaching uh, you that there were, like, flavors of ethnic whiteness that had very, very definite, like, yeah. concepts around them. Whereas, you know, the kids who'd wandered over were were not they were not up and running on that yet you know right. like the old irish idea the old italian idea the you know this block belongs to these people we're like wait where did where was that posted <laughs> i didn't see it posted yeah okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by sax.com at Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So, I mean, this is what I love about the book is like those, those negotiations that are starting to happen between members of the neighborhood who are from different racial groups or different backgrounds or even different socioeconomic groups as in the past that you were it's just reading. Very much about class as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I wondered if you could read a scene to us that is one of those trans negotiations, right? And it's between a white optometrist and a black customer. And it's just... I don't know what it is. It's like, it's like how people learn to work together or if they want to work together in the early stages of a neighborhood changing. Yeah. Is that what you were aiming for Let me there? try. Well, let's read it and we'll talk okay. about it. What, do you have the page number for it me? It starts on page 30. Okay, great. It's the smudge part one. The smudge and then to part go one. to the space break would be great. A lot of these um, sequences in this book set up like jokes almost. You know, like... Uh, Characters you've never met before but get introduced very abruptly. So this one starts like a joke. Black man walks into a glasses shop on Atlantic Avenue. Outside, rain falls. At the door, a cardboard box waits for umbrellas. Not so many people walk through this door. 
We remain in the long valley between the invention of this neighborhood and the acceptance of the proposition as a done deal. The triumphalist phase is decades away. Was this gentrification premature? The white-coated opticians turn as the door chimes. You're back, one of them says. Damn right I'm back. The black man wipes his feet, jogs forward. He wears a baseball cap and his glasses. The optician doesn't move. You don't need to use language. He <laughs> sold him these glasses yesterday. $100 cash, not out of a wallet. The customer bounces from one foot to another. He pushes his chin forward, hands by his side. Look, he says, same damn thing. The optician grunts and moves to look. A smudge. Scratched, says the customer. Same as the last pair. If you can't fix the problem, why'd you sell me the damn glasses? A smudge. Clean it off, here. The customer ducks. Don't fool with me. Can't clean it off. They're already messed up like the old ones. Let me see. Where's the doctor? I want to talk to the doctor. That's my associate. He's not a doctor. Let me see them. You're not the doctor, man. The customer dances away. We're the same, says the optician. We make glasses. The second optician comes out of the back, and the customer grins. There's the man I want to see. The second one takes it in. Something wrong with the glasses? Same as yesterday. Look. He strips his glasses with his right hand and offers them to the second optician. OK. First of all, remove with two hands, like I showed you. The second optician pinches the glasses at the hinges, demonstrating. He raises them to his own face. You touched them. That's the problem. No. That's fingerprints. Damn, doctor man, I'll show you the old ones. You can't even fix the problem. The problem is you touched them. Here. The second optician dips the glasses in a shallow bath of cleanser, dries them with a chamois cloth. The customer bobs forward, trying to see. What do you, scratch at your eyes all the time, says the first optician, smiling now. <laughs> Shut up, the customer finger points. You're not my doctor on this. <laughs> Nobody is, says the first optician. You don't need a doctor. You need to keep your hands from your eyes. Shut up. The second optician glares at the first. He hands the glasses over. Let me see you put them on. The customer bends his head and lifts the glasses to his face. Wait a minute, I couldn't see, said the first optician. The bill of your cap was in the way. Put them on again, says the second. Same thing. The customer shakes his head. He pulls off the glasses again with one hand. Look, still there, little scratches. The first optician steps up close. You smudged it again. When I couldn't see, it's the way you put them on. I call that a permanent smudge, says the customer. I paid $100, might as well have kept the old ones. He thrusts the glasses at the first optician. They're just dirty, your hands are dirty. The customer raises his eyebrows. That's weak, doctor man. I come in here, show you a pair of glasses with scratches. I'm looking for help. You tell me I need new glasses. Now these ones got a permanent smudge. You tell me I got dirty hands. These are the glasses you sold me, my man. Your old pair, you had them, what, 10 years? The hinges were shot, the nose piece was gone, the lens touched your cheek. The glasses I sold you are fine. You have to break some habits. Habits? He's a clown. We should have thrown him out yesterday. Instead, you took my money, said the customer. Good enough for you yesterday. 
You couldn't see black for all the green yesterday. Now I look black to you. Now I'm a clown. You think we need your $100? We'll make you right, says the second, ignoring his partner. Sit down. Let me look at the fit. It's a good optometrist, bad optometrist routine. <laughs> now the glasses, the proof, are in enemy hands. Shit, doctor man. What do you know about my habits? Okay. The second optician's voice becomes soothing. I just want to see you put them on. Naturally, like you would. Don't push them into your face. They won't fall off. He offers the glasses, then pulls them back. Take off your hat. The customer removes his hat. Here you go. Nice and easy. The customer stuffs the hat in his ass pocket, then raises the glasses with two trembling hands. Okay. Thank you very much. There's a really particular secret about this. I've never read that piece aloud in this still new process of reading from this book, and I had never thought of doing it, and there's a reason, which is that that one story in the book, which I break up, it appears, it smudges, takes like 100 pages to resolve, it just drops in a few yeah. times. But that is a ringer. It's the only piece of this book that isn't new. I wrote that story in, I believe, 1993. Holy cow. And it precedes any other writing I'd done about the street life of Brooklyn. Wow. It was the first time I'd ever leapt into what became, obviously, such important material for me. And it just hung there. It kind of plopped out, and I, I published it in a fairly quiet place. It was just a short story among others. And I had not written Motherless Brooklyn, let alone Fortress of Solitude. And it was there kind of emanating this it feels thought. in no way different in tone or meaning to the rest well, of the book, which is kind of I mean, of I did, I tinkered with the language. I did kind of groom it so yeah. it would feel like this book, but it's essentially the story I wrote in the 90s. Don't throw things away, yeah. young writers out there. <laughs> so, um, did you, would you have kept it on a computer, like, at that time? That's a weird question to ask, but, like... I think I had to retype it from a... Uh, like had a manuscript, was, probably. It was published. I didn't have the manuscript. Oh, you had the I magazine had the, that it published. I had, yeah, it was the Voice Literary Supplement. It was news, newsprint. That's and I awesome. had it folded up in a drawer. Yeah. So a lot of this book talks about gentrification. That, that passage talks about gentrification in ways. And you have an entire section in the book that goes through and examines all the language of gentrification, which I liked and enjoyed. Terms like blockbuster, redliner, real estate broker, displacer, pioneer, settlers, and questions that language and thinks about that language. Yeah. We may be, Lawrence is not immune to gentrification, <laughs> by the way. Um, there's quite a bit happening in the neighborhood where I live. Um, how much has the language of gentrification, the conception of what it means, changed since the 70s? Well, I mean, the, uh, I'm going to kind of do a pretzel maneuver on your question. That's fine. The word gentrification itself is so taken for granted, it's not that old. This common use of it where we all just say it, like yeah. everyone knows what that is, it had to be invented and then become familiar, began as an academic term in England. I started researching it and this certainty that we have that attaches to this, the familiarity of that word is recent. 
You know, people didn't know what was going on, and they had different words for it. Of course, early on, when the process was being given names, it was being given positive names. Uh, it was not a term that I remember being used in Kansas City at all until we actually, people became aware of that you could make a lot of money in Brooklyn. Like, people actually learned that in the 90s, like in Kansas City, and then artists and younger people who were not from Kansas City started realizing, oh, we might be able to pull this off here. Yeah. And that started happening in a place called The Crossroads. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here and we'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, uh, you know, I watched this, I watched the, the adults, the parents in my neighborhood discover that they were doing something, sometimes very, some of them very intentionally and sometimes inadvertently and sometimes with mixed purposes or, or uh, confusion about what role they were playing. Mm -hmm. And they had to find that name before they could even begin arguing about whether it was a good or bad result. Um, you know, it was a fresh word at that time. But, um, you know, it's amazing how many of the, you know, you mentioned pioneers. There were so many metaphors from the, what we would now call West. a co colonial or yeah. settler <laughs> history of the United States that, you know, this was not Conesta wagons in, in, in Brooklyn, right? Right. But this idea of settlers or pioneers was very, very strong. And more than that, you had very strange other words that were imposed. There was a project by the Brooklyn Union Gas, our utility company, to help people renovate the buildings. It was called the Cinderella Project, which is really uneasy if you think about Cinderella's. Like, <laughs> that mean the other buildings are the ugly stepsisters? <laughs> Or that it's all going to go back the way it was at midnight, <laughs> or there needs to be a prince. And then there was a newspaper that was the Brownstoners newspaper. It's called The Phoenix, which is like a thing coming back to life. Yeah. Well, very awkward given that actually there was a lot of buildings on fire there all the time. So, but, um, you know, this inadvertent yearning to put it in some kind of metaphorical framework, mm -hmm. almost a, a, like a, or to find language, in, yes. in essence, for what yeah. was happening, right? Yeah. To name things, in a way, for the first time. Yeah. And there was an obsession with um, Victorianism, with restoring the buildings to a previous, like a kind of um, a legacy past that would explain why it was okay that now they were being taken over by a white community. 
because they were Victorian houses, right? Oh, okay. So then you exaggerate this kind of image of like, you know, uh, gas-fitted fixtures in the in the chandelier or you know, the marble fireplaces, and people would actually even dress up in Victorian outfits and be photographed in their restored parlors, as if to say, you see, we're just bringing it back. Used to be white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, that's exactly, this is weird because the, the quote I wrote down cuts out part of what you're talking about, but I'm gonna read you, I, let me put it this way, I, I grew up in a, uh, not grew up in, I, li I grew up very near this, this neighborhood, but I, I lived in a black neighborhood in Kansas City for about 10 years when I came back from uh, New York, actually. It's a beautiful neighborhood, and I still own that house, and my neighbors are still my friends. And what they always, they never talked about gentrification. Like my neighbor, Helen Thomas, would just be like, when is my property value going to go up? Because all the houses just a few blocks away in white neighborhoods, like my parents' house, it's gone up, uh, you know, a hundred times in value since they bought the house in 67, whereas Helen's house is the same as what she bought it for 30 years ago, right? And so, in a way, there are people who own property in black neighborhoods who would like to see, you know, like, it seems fair, right? That's a store of value, real estate, going up in, in, in in value and like and for them at least for Helen and for other friends that I had there that wouldn't have been a bad thing you know like and so I think there's that it's a complicated issue like it's not all as simple as like oh this will be terrible for everyone well it's very complicated and you know now I want to push it one stage further and say that word gentrification covers so many different kinds of dynamic and process and experience when people refer to it, right. that it's actually, I think, sometimes concealing as much as it successfully names. And one of the things I started to intuit was that the action for me, in terms of my political desires, my sense of you know, justice, or my idealization of a, a world that would make sense to me, would reflect my values, I started to look at this kind of carving off of one area, like a eight city blocks or even 20 city blocks, and saying, you know, the argument is whether or not it should change and in what way is itself a blind that larger structural issues about capitalism and right. equity and our society were what we really needed to address. And that just, just being like, in favor or not in favor, whether it was of pretty buildings or property values or really good restaurants or whatever, was not going to actually be the argument that mattered. Yeah. To, to, you know, of course, many people experienced the early part of what we call the gentrification of my neighborhood as like, wow, it's coming back to life. Or, wow, now the cops will come and, and, and take this criminal activity out of our viewfinder you know mm -hmm. like we won't come out of our house at night and see something going on or be or be mugged as much right but or you know or 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 the schools got better yeah you know but that's not that's not the story that i started to think was the one that um that had to be understood. The story that had to be understood is how larger forces 
developers, urban, you know, the, the city itself, the society itself, were leaving enormous kinds of, you know, tragic inequity. So is that the crime in Brooklyn crime novel? I'm not going to tell you what the crime is. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to find the crime. I mean, because I feel crime. that that's true, <laughs> that, 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 that the story of Kansas City is, is the story of, like, the Nichols company that used racial covenants to divide the city, and so yeah. that Helen Thomas's property was worthless because a company had spent a, a, a century teaching people that separate white space was more valuable than space for multi-ethnic people I mean, lived in and that's and real estate's yeah. all about its imaginary value yeah you it's more because you say it's more or because someone will pay for it it's not like anything that's real yeah well you mentioned blockbusting and this is a term that people haven't always heard as much anymore but it was a it was a sensation and a, and a scandal in the time just before you know in the 1950s the way neighborhoods were were um exploited was a reverse maneuver of scaring the white people out yeah. specifically by telling them that the neighborhood had gotten so black that their property values were about to plummet and chasing them into the suburbs and then flipping the houses yeah. to make a fully, a fully non-white community. And, and it was a double monstrosity because once you'd done that, you controlled the property values in this there were, there were black real estate agents in yeah. Kansas City that did that. In fact, in the King of Kings County, if you guys want to check out that story, you can read about so, that. So, the, you know, we all feel like we want to treat our, you know, like the people in front of us humanely. And many, many of the people I grew up with were, in fact, participants in civil rights era. Yeah. Not just like they marched once or twice, but they had gone and, you know, they'd gone on, on freedom rides and, or they'd taught in impoverished neighborhoods where, you know, there, there was a, a segregated school and then there had been busing and then there'd, there'd been, you know, the teachers had, 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 had left or, or been fired. Uh -huh. I mean, all kinds of, desires to live in a, a society that reflected the, um, the values of the civil rights era helped create, and these are bitter ironies, helped create the desire to live in, in Brooklyn, to come back from the suburbs and live in the cities. And of course, also, you mentioned artists, it's so often driven by people looking for affordable yeah. places to live and make art, people who can't afford and want to be in a community where there is that kind of possibility is often even driven by people who feel that they are in some way radicals or sexual exiles or not welcome in other places. Gentrification starts with an inordinate number of different kinds of desires, many of them really idealistic. Well, let's talk about that. Not just property values. This book is also about writing, um, and, and particular writing that is connected to Brooklyn, right? You talk about Lovecraft, who lived on Clinton Street. You quote Rosalind Brown's novel, yeah. In Story Street Games, which is a book that I really love, um, and is written in the same neighborhood, yeah, about the same neighborhoods that you're writing about. What are the Brooklyn or non-Brooklyn books that you thought about while writing this book? Well, there's so many. I mean, when I say that the kids were in a kind of 
laboratory space, we were experiencing these juxtapositions and transformations and trying to process them in our play or in our, our, our enmities or our, our, our you know, arrangements out on the street. I think that not just because it was a cheap place, an affordable place for a starving artist to live, but also because it was a stimulating, crazy, intoxicating place for writers to, to be, there were, there were beautiful, strange novels written in that time and place, like, and Rosellen Brown's collection of stories, you know, which comes right from my street. What an amazing book, Street oh, Games. Oh, is that right? That you yeah. grew up on? Absolutely, right That's there. That's so cool. Uh, she she um, was writing about Dean Street, same, same yeah. street. And um, Paula Fox, who wrote Desperate Characters. Oh, yeah. That's also Dean Street. That's right. Um, and we have to put it, a museum up there for you guys. There was also, of course, a legacy, slightly wider orbit, books like Betty Smith's Three Goes in Brooklyn and um, Henry Miller, when he bothered to admit that he was from Brooklyn, wrote brilliantly <laughs> about it in, in Black Spring. Um, I and, like that book. And That's then later, book. in the end of his life, he sort of circled back. He wrote a book called Henry Miller's Book of Friends, which is basically just reminiscing about playing with kids on Driggs Street, you know. That's awesome. And, um, he, it's like he came back in his, in his uh, last writings and, um, and others. And then, the, you know, the city is blessed, of course, with writing. James Baldwin's Another Country was a, yeah. novel, a novel that I relied on. I teach that book. That's a great book. Uh, it, that, to me, was the first time I saw the city as I knew it in a novel. When uh -huh. I was a teenage reader, I was like, oh, these are like... These are the people that I that I meet, yeah. you know, or that I spy on because they're my parents' friends or whatever. And I was I was just amazed that he he put it all in a book. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Um, so my last question is structure. So when I'm thinking about this book, I was thinking Brooklyn crime novel, or is it Brooklyn time novel? <laughs> you know, this, this is, you know, a non-traditionally structured book. It moves around in time. It shifts point of view all, all the time. And, and there are times, and sometimes the movements in time can span decades in a single, like, movement from one section to the next. And yet, at the same time, it feels to me like it exists in one single time frame. And there's one point where you you know from which normal linear time has been suspended, right? And you say at one point that it's like a Brooklyn app. Some of these Brooklyn afternoons that you say go on for years, right? So there's a distortion of time. Um, were you aiming for that? <laughs> is that what well, you were I, 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 or is that just how it happened? I got there. I don't remember at what point I realized that I was writing as much about the operation of time and memory as about any other specific topic in this book. But I think in some ways I was cast into that. I mean, you know, it's a, as an artist or just as a human being, it's a blessing to live long enough to look back at the strangeness of even other parts of your adult life. I feel life. like this conversation could have been in the book. Like literally, yeah. like there was yeah. 20 years ago we had this conversation. We really haven't seen each other Absolutely. since then. Now we're doing it again. We it's could do very a whole, strange. whole chapter. And it doesn't it. feel like it was long ago at all. Yeah. I mean, I was in my 30s when I found the the voice, the courage to try to write about 
coming of age in Brooklyn, and I wrote Fortress of Solitude. I thought I was a pretty complete, you know, sensibility, and I, 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 I'd, I'd been married and divorced already, and I was like, you know, a grown-up person and writer. And the, the amazement of being now, I'm almost 60, and looking back at that initial effort, and, you know, I'm proud of, proud as hell of that book, but also it seems really distant to me. I was working with what I had then. I have all these new thoughts in my head, and also the world has changed so much, and to live this long is to end up being a witness of just, the, it's like um, I'm, I can cross a bridge in time. When I wrote about the 70s in, you know, 2000, 2001, I was, those experiences and also just being a child were much nearer to me. Now it's like I'm writing about something that happened on Mars. It's, it's a super exotic retrieval process to, to make that. And plus you live in California now, so you have yeah. to think all the way across the country. Yeah, well I do, I do go back and I went back a lot, but actually I benefit from that distance in some ways because I create a diorama of my sense memories and I then I walk through it. Like and that so frequently happens. Yeah. I mean, Joyce wrote about Dublin by not being in Dublin. And yeah. That happens very often. All right. We are here at the end of our talk. I hope everyone will go out and check out a copy of this excellent novel. And Jonathan, thanks for being here in Lawrence. Thank you podcast. so much. Thanks, everyone. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!